Welcome to EO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, the director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Corey Russell, Assistant Professor of Landscape Architecture and Environmental Studies at the University of Oregon. Russell's research focuses on planning, designing, and implementing sustainable water and sanitation services in low and middle income countries. He's conducted extensive research internationally, including in Haiti, Colombia, and Mozambique, where he also spent three years serving as a Peace Corps volunteer. Russell helped co-found and currently leads the Resource Sanitation Research Initiative, originally funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In addition, he is the current chair of the Container-Based Sanitation Alliance. Russell is also one of the co-founders of the Landscape for Humanity Initiative and Lab at the University of Oregon. Thanks, Corey, for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to chatting. So tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be a landscape architect. Yeah, <clears throat> well, it's been a, a long, torturous path. Um, I started my early uh, years in the in the state of Oregon. I was I was actually born in Cottage Grove, um, and and then I, my parents ended up moving us all over the world. I lived in Papua New Guinea, went to high school there, um, and then I did my undergraduate work in in uh, environmental science and biology and then did a master's in environmental science and then that's when I went to the Peace Corps and I sort of looked around and I had my sort of no duh moment when when I sort of said you know it's it's really I, I care deeply about the environment and these issues but it's really hard to ask people to care about the environment when the basic necessities of life are so far out of reach um and so that's when I went back uh to to school and I did a, a, an a master's in civil and environmental engineering and then a PhD in civil and environmental engineering at Stanford. Uh, and that that really led me to working on these issues of water and sanitation, just being these basic human rights um, that are just so essential to health and well-being and, and basic human dignity. Um, and and then following uh, my my work in there, I, I moved up here to to the University of Oregon. Um, and uh, was offered a, a joint appointment in environmental studies and then landscape architecture. And, and the connection really here has a lot to do with the work that I do in, um, in, in sanitation. So with container-based sanitation and looking at informal settlements. So if you look around the world right now, um, there's about a billion people living in informal settlements, which are often colloquially referred to as slums, sometimes pejoratively. Um, and and there's uh, a lot of growth that's happening in this this area, right? By by the year 2050, the UN habitat basically estimates that we'll be at somewhere around three billion people living in informal settlements. So it will become one of the dominant forms of urbanization moving through the next 30, 50 years or so. And so providing services in these areas is is so key to to that. And so where I see landscape architecture as a discipline um, really engaging with these issues is in that sort of planning and, and molding of a urban fabric and, and landscape that is constantly changing and morphing at a rate that we're just not used to in, in what we've observed in, in the recent past, right? When we think about urbanization. Um, so that's, that's a lot of sort of how I think about it is how do we sort of think about what worked for us in the last hundred years when it comes to water and sanitation in large cities and how does that need to change to actually work for us going going into the future so why don't you tell us about 
how it needs to change going into the future, given this this wave of um, that's coming that we're going to have three billion people. Yeah. So I think in a, in a lot of ways, when we think about how we've done uh, water and sanitation in in the urban area, you know, going back to the late 1800s, it, it will mid 1800s, right, with John Snow in uh, the, the cholera outbreaks in in London, when we really started to see sewers and piped water as the essential elements that that were there for for disease control and public health, and we've really modeled much of what we've done in the the interceding 150 years on that model, right, of sewers and pipes. But that was a model designed in the 1850s for cities that were pushing their boundaries at a couple million people, right? And we're now looking at, at mega cities with, with tens of millions of people in them. And, and so the ability to be really inefficient with our water usage, right? Um, really inefficient with how we, we do those sort of things is becoming a huge issue, especially in light of climate change, in light of dwindling resources. If we're really gonna provide these services, we have to sort of start to rethink how we're doing that. And in a lot of areas, that means how do we get water out of wastewater? How do we take the water that we're using to flush our toilets. I mean, if you think about it, you know, we we use high quality drinking water to flush human feces. That's not the most efficient way that we could be doing this. Um, and so, a lot of what I'm looking at is is one: what are the solutions that we can do that are highly flexible that can change? And that's where container based sanitation comes in. Is how do you deploy a system? Um, that allows you to react to a changing environment because a lot of what we look at, you know, in, in the US, for instance, is permanent infrastructure, right? It hasn't changed since it was put, put in in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And that's a problem if you've got a city fabric that's, that's morphing almost on a yearly basis. Um, you're, you sort of get into a sunk cost um, in, in some areas. And, and to be clear, you know, when we think about this, different contexts mean different things, right? If you're in a water-rich area that's going to have more water, uh, th then switching away from water-based sanitation is not necessarily the best option. But if you're in somewhere like, say, Lima, Peru, for instance, which is the second driest capital uh, behind Cairo on Earth, getting sanitation to your millions of residents is going to require some rethinking because there's just not enough water available currently without doing something very, very differently. So um, <clears throat> a lot of what I work on in, in what I started, you know, in my, my graduate career to work on was this idea of container-based sanitation, which is basically these mobile toilets. So something that's the size of a toilet that you would find in your bathroom, uh, but it's not connected to any, any pipes. So it's not using any water. You can move it around your household, which is really essential in, in sort of low income uh, informal settlements where you may only have a room, right? So you put the toilet outside during the day, bring it in at night, move it into a different room, these sorts of things so that you, because you're, you're using a single room or a couple rooms for multifaceted activities. And so being able to move around that space is really key. It also allows folks that maybe don't own or don't have the property rights for their, their property uh, land tenure is a huge issue in informal settlements, right? So uh, governments are often unwilling or unable to extend water and sanitation services into these areas because uh, there's there's a implicit uh, acknowledgement of their right to be there if you do that. And so governments are very hesitant to, to extend into those areas, but you can uh, start to get sanitation into these areas with something like container-based sanitation because it's mobile. And so 
the the user can take that toilet with them if they have to move or they get evicted or different things like this. And, and as we've seen, you know, from, from, I think we all have a much larger understanding of the uh, disease epidemiology now that we've gone through the pandemic in a way that we wouldn't, you know, a year and a half ago. Um, but when you crowd people into dense spaces and then do not provide waste and clean water services, <laughs> that is the optimal setting for uh, the outbreak of pandemics. And in diseases that we've largely sort of forgotten about, like cholera, for instance, there, there are outbreaks of that all the time in, in locations like this, uh, where I was working in Haiti uh, in the past with an organization called Soil, fantastic organization, people should definitely check them out. Um, there's, there's, you know, constant cholera outbreaks, and, and that was actually brought over by UN peacekeeping troops uh, during, during their time there. So, it's, it's one of those difficult things, right, where when you start packing people together and not providing services, this is a major public health issue going forward. But back to container-based sanitation. So you have this toilet, and then you have collectors that go around and take the sealed container out of, out of the toilet or cartridge and put a new one in, a fresh one, on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. Um, and depending on the location, that can be a, a subscription model. So it's sort of like the toilet is the cell phone, uh, the data plan is the service that, that services that toilet. Um, and so this, this was an idea that was um, a little controversial when we, when we started back in 2010 um, because of its close association just in sort of the, the way that it looks to sort of colonial bucket toilets in, in Africa. And so what we did in order to sort of separate what we were doing now and, and really start to work on a problem that needed, uh, needed interaction with it from that history was that my time in, in Mozambique in, up until 1975 had a bucket, a colonial bucket toilet system. And so I was able to go around and interview and spend a lot of time talking to folks who had actually used that system, find out what they didn't like, what they did like, what were the problematic elements of it? What were these sorts of things? And then, and then we could address that in, in the design phase for a lot of, a lot of this work. Um, and then the other thing that we did, you know, when we rolled it out initially was we spent a lot of time uh, just doing research on it because we didn't want to roll it out and say, this is a good idea without evidence to back up that people wanted this, that it was actually making people's lives better and that it wasn't spreading disease in itself, right? Um, there's a long history in the water and sanitation sector of ideas that seemed really good and worked well in a small, small location. Everyone got super excited about it, dumped a bunch of money into it, and then it turned out it wasn't a good fit in a lot of other areas and caused problems, right? Um, so that was one of the things that, that we spent a lot of time doing. And as that was developing, as we were developing this system there in Haiti with soil, uh, there were a number of other organizations around the world, um, XRunner down in Peru, uh, Clean Team in Ghana, uh, Sanovation and Sanergy, who are both in Kenya, and Luwad, who operates in, in uh, Madagascar. And we were all bumping into each other at conferences and, and realized we were all sort of reinventing the wheel uh, and not sharing information. And so in, in 2016, right as I, I got here to the University of Oregon, we started to have some meetings with some help from Oxfam and then some other funders came on board to form the, the Container-Based Sanitation Coalition, um, Coalition Alliance. Um, and <laughs> you'd think I'd know it being the chair, but you know. Um, <laughs> so the, the CBSA 
what we did was sort of use that as a platform to sort of understand and speak with one voice on these issues and move it forward in a way that would be more beneficial for more people, right? Um, so that we could sort of tackle these issues because when everybody was sort of doing their own thing, they're competing for a limited number of funds. It wasn't like it was market competition that people were overlapping they're in very different parts of the world, but there's only so much funding to do innovative stuff in sectors like this. And so this allowed for funders to put money into one central location and get answers across several different regions. It allowed us to do research um, that would be far more cutting edge for the, the time in which we've done it. And so we've done a lot of work in, in the preceding year, specifically looking at the climate impacts of different um, sanitation uh, technologies and services, as well as the cost effectiveness and that sort of stuff. And so that's been what we've, we've been rolling out recently. And, as a result of a lot of this work, the the WHO in um, the WHO, along with with UNICEF, who runs the joint monitoring program for the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, said in 2019 classified container-based sanitation as improved sanitation, which then allows it to be counted and allows governments to implement it and then consider it. Uh, as, as sanitation towards their sustainable development goals um, on the sort of global scale. So let me just ask you a quick follow-up question about container-based sanitation. So you've described how the toilets work and you've described the, you know, a possible subscription service. What ha tell us about the processing of the waste because I, my understanding is there are benefits on that side as well. There absolutely are, yeah. So you can sort of think of container-based sanitation in, in the terms of, of what we often talk about as a sanitation value chain, right? So you have the user interface. Is that a toilet? Is that a squat plate? Is that a hole in the ground, right? There's, there's that. Then you have the collection service, right? And is that a pipe in the ground? Is that a septic tank? And then a truck has to come to pump it out. Is that a container that's sealed and then moved um, to a waste treatment facility? Then you have a waste treatment facility. And that's where there's, there's a huge potential uh, with container-based sanitation. Because generally, if you think about, um, and, and I say this in my, my classes all the time, so I apologize for you using the same material, but um, you know, if you have a kilogram of, of feces in one hand and a kilogram of coal in the other, one, reevaluate your life choices. But two, um, that, that kilogram of feces has as much energetic content, a little more actually, than that kilogram of coal. The difference is that kilogram of feces is unprocessed, right? It's like a raw ore. Um, and, and generally, that means that you need to get it dry. Uh, you need to get the moisture out. And so what happens in most systems, right, is that we dump it into water. And so now it's, you know, 99% of what's moving through the wastewater treatment facility here in, in Eugene is water. And so you're trying to pull that water out and separate it. That's energy intensive. That's, um, and then what you get after that is, is not as, as useful. Now, one way of dealing with that is that you, once you put feces in water, it breaks down anaerobically without oxygen. So instead of releasing carbon dioxide, it's releasing methane. Um, and methane being a greenhouse gas, which is about 20 times more powerful um, than, than CO2 means that as a climate change problem, our septic tanks, which about one fifth of the US is on, are just pumping methane into the atmosphere, right? So that's not a good, a good setup. Now, like for instance, here in Eugene, they do a fantastic job in which they're actually capturing the methane, burning it to use some of that fuel to operate the plant. They've been in talks for a while. I don't know if they finished this, but to, to use the excess um, 
methane into the natural gas pipelines, right? There's, so there's ways to recapture this. But if you don't have to get rid of all that water, if you just have the feces, there are all these sorts of potentials to do other resource recovery. So for instance, uh, soil in Haiti is composting it. They're thermophilically composting it. So thermophilic composting is a little different than what most people think of in composting, which is, you know, you just let it sit there and it turns into soil sort of thing. Uh, thermophilic composting, if you get a big enough mass, it's sort of like if you have a big pile of grass and it gets really hot inside, you can actually get that temperature up high enough that it kills the pathogen, the pathogenic material in there. And there's, there's WHO and EPA standards for how you do that and that sort of thing. Um, in, and then you basically have a very hot pile of crap. Um, so, so then, you know, that's about a two week phase and then you need to uh, sort of season it, right? And turn it into something that looks like soil that you can buy in a garden store. And so soil sells this in garden stores. Um, we, we have it in the, in the US as well. Um, Milarganite is one of the oldest, it comes from Milwaukee, hence the Milarganite, um, but it's a, it's a biosolid. Um, so there's, there's cost recovery that can be done with that back-end treatment if you can get that efficiently enough uh, done that you can sort of create a second revenue stream. Um, in, in, uh, in the case of Sanergy and Sanovation, Sanovation who operates in Kenya, they're actually turning it into a, a biofuel log, so a solid fuel. So they mix it about 50% with agricultural waste, 50% feces, and they've created a whole process whereby they're using solar energy to basically pasteurize the feces, and then they mix it and extrude it in these, these logs that can then be used in industrial processes instead of coal or charcoal, or they'll sell it as, as charcoal briquettes instead of, you know, deforestation. So there can be a lot of gains there. Um, Sanergy is using black soldier fly. So if you've, um, if you want to gross yourself out, you can YouTube black soldier flies eating compost. Um, they're these ferocious, uh, and, and black soldier fly are, are endemic in most places in the world. Um, and they just, they eat and eat and eat. And then they, they crawl away once they're full and they're ready to pupate, which is perfect because they're self-harvesting. Uh, so you can collect these. And then once you have these, these, these little uh, pupae or worms, right, um, you can bake, and they're maggots, um, you can basically bake them and turn them into an animal feed. They have about 40% protein. So they're really, really nutritious and they work really well for pigs and chickens and things like that, right? And then they compost whatever's left over after that. Um, and then you have Lou Watt, who is, is basically doing um, a bunch of work around uh, capturing methane and using it as a fuel source. You also have um, uh, Mosan, which is an affiliate member of the Container-Based Sanitation Alliance in, in Guatemala, and they're doing biochar. So the other thing is that if you biochar feces, one of the things that's really hard is if it's in water, right, that's so much dewatering that has to happen before you can biochar it that it becomes energy inefficient. Whereas if you have raw feces, you can do a system and, and uh, biomass controls out on the East Coast has actually turned this into a containerized product where that you can put it in there and it comes out as, as biochar, raw feces goes in and comes out as biochar. That's really efficient from a, from a time sort of cost recovery because you can just put it in and in, you, know, you can process the waste of about 10,000 users a day in a container, like a shipping container. So that's, that's a fantastic option. And also from a climate change perspective, 
biochar uh, releases its carbon back in the atmosphere on a much slower time scale than other stuff on a, on a time scale of hundreds of years, as opposed to tens or even, you know, a few, a few months. So that means it can be sort of a climate change solution at the same time. And that's one of the things that we've been looking at a lot at the container-based sanitation and some, some work that we have in review right now to look at, well, what is the climate change potential here? Could we be providing sanitation to some of the most vulnerable communities and at the same time be solving some of the climate change issue or, or addressing some of the climate change issue? And, you know, currently about 6% of global methane emissions is coming from sanitation. And if we think about, you know, well, we need to scale up to about 2.3 billion people who have no sanitation and we're trying to get them sanitation. And then there's, and if you include people that have unsafe sanitation in there, but some form of sanitation, that's around 4.3 billion, right? So that means we're gonna increase the amount of sanitation uh, technology and, and services around the world substantially in the coming years. And we can either do that in a climate positive way, or we can do it in sort of the traditional way. And that could be very problematic. We could be sort of self-defeating on the sustainable development goals, right? Um, and so thinking that through and thinking, how do we actually create uh, climate positive sanitation solutions is going to be key to, to accomplishing both goals going forward. This is such, such fascinating work, but I'm going to shift gears a little bit at this point. So you're also one of the co-founders of the Landscape for Humanities Initiative and Lab at the University of Oregon. So tell us about that, that initiative and lab. Yeah, so I, I, I helped co-found that with, with a number of people, most, most notably Yekong Ko over in Landscape Architecture and Jock Abelman. Um, and the idea here was that, you know, one of the things that is always sort of a frustration, I think, for, for lots of folks when they're a researcher is that you put, you put stuff out into the world and a lot of times it sort of sits on a shelf. There's a few people that read it, reference it, that sort of thing, but it, it doesn't have the impact maybe that you were hoping. And one of the things that we were thinking about that's, that's so unique about landscape architecture is that landscape architecture is a very applied um, discipline, right? Um, and, and I've often sort of straddled these worlds of, of hardcore research for you know research sake and then sort of very applied sorts of stuff and so this was an opportunity to sort of create a framework for students and faculty to get involved in sort of the the pressing issues that we're seeing here in in the pacific northwest and so one of the main things that we've been focusing on is sort of how does landscape and thinking through a landscape design lens uh lend itself to uh, addressing sort of wicked problems. And one of the main ones that we've been working on in, in Landscape for Humanity has been um, sort of the houseless and homeless issue here in, in Eugene. And so we've been working with um, Opportunity Village, Eugene, to sort of think about how do we, uh, how do we bring what skills, you know, these design students have to actual uh, applications in the community. Um, and, and one of the things that, that is really key that we sort of think of through this Landscape for Humanity lens is, is that in many ways, um, one of the problems that we have with, with houselessness and homelessness, right, is a systemic issue. 
There's, there's a basically, there's, there's a lack of affordable housing. This is a, an issue that needs to be solved way above the lens of landscape architecture, right? We're not, we're not, we're not under any wild illusion that we're gonna do some, some design exercises and fix the problem. That said, there are definitely things that can be done to try and improve the issue while we all advocate for long-term systemic change, right? And, and one of those is sort of more transitional housing, ways to get folks into a situation which is more stable and allow them to get access to the services that they need. Um, and OVE has really been at the forefront of this, not only in Eugene, but, but in the nation of, of sort of pushing this idea forward and creating a, a, a community of, of tiny homes that people can come to and be there for as long as they need before they transition into permanent housing. But one of the things that we really see is, is an issue, right, is that just one community is insufficient, right? We, if you drive around town, you know this is, this is a major issue where we actually have one of the, if not the highest per capita homelessness rate in the nation. Uh, and so there needs to be a lot more transitional housing to, to deal with that and try and, and help. Um, and one of the things that, that becomes an issue, right, is that if, if we sort of warehouse people, that's not solving the issue, right? We need to reintegrate folks into the fabric of, of the urban landscape, of society, that sort of thing, as much as possible and not sort of other them and put them in a, in a different location. And so what we're focused on a lot of times is different activities that can be done in these, these tiny homes that make them look uh, and feel and are a uh, an amenity to communities as opposed to the community being like, we don't want those folks here, we want them elsewhere, but they become part of the, the, the neighborhood fabric, right? What are the different ways? Is it, is it tiny gardens? Is it, um, you know, doing different landscape interventions that make it look like an amenity? If you drive by Eve, which is U Emerald Village, Eugene, um, you'll, you'll see a community that looks fantastic. And it's, it's just an awesome opportunity. And I would highly recommend people check that out if you want more information about sort of ways in which this can be done. Um, it's sort of a, a, you know, it's a close by OVE. And so one of the things that, you know, I've been specifically working on uh, with Landscape uh, for Humanity is the idea of gray water uh, planters. So if you think about the different water, the different wastewater coming, you know, in a city, you've got stormwater, right, falling from the sky, running, we need to filter it some way, but it should be going back into and infiltrating, uh, back into creeks and, and rivers. Then you have black water, which is human feces, industrial waste, right? We want to take that to a waste treatment facility, get that taken care of. Um, and then you have gray water, which is your shower water, it's your laundry water, it's your sink water. A lot of times low contamination levels, but we're sending that straight to the waste treatment facility. And then we're using fresh water, drinking quality water to do our, our irrigation, all of that sort of stuff. So it's a highly inefficient uh, use of water is basically it. So can we capture gray water in a situation like this and reuse it to grow and create green space within the community? And, and one of the things we're doing there is actually partnering with the, the city of Eugene to grow trees. So, so basically, you know, they need trees to be a certain height, uh, a certain sort of hardiness to, to plant them around town to, to meet their goals for, for uh, increased tree cover around the city. 
And this is an opportunity where we can then have these plantings. Uh, they can spend a couple of years in one of the planters and then be sold to the city. And that creates revenue to help the community um, to, to hopefully help the, the function of the community. Now, this is in pilot phase right now. Um, but the other thing that we can do, right, is not increase costs by just capturing gray water, reusing gray water. Um, and so you're not running up, up the bills. Now, long term, one of the other things we're looking at is that, you know, a number of, of organizations as they're setting up transitional housing have nowhere to put gray water. So OVE is in a unique situation, which they have a sewer connection. So they're, they're you know, we're, we're taking water um, using it as, and then filtering it through, and then it goes into, into the, the sewer system, right? Uh, and we're going through the, all the permitting process and all that, so nobody worry. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the problem is in, in a lot of these other ones that are, that are popping up and placed in, you know, um, ill-used spaces like, uh, like, say, a parking lot or something like that, there isn't a sewer hookup, right? And so they have to pay a, a large amount of money to truck water in, and then truck that gray water back out. And there's the potential here to actually process that gray water on site and use it and, and sort of beautify that area so people aren't just living in a parking lot but actually have some green space and also take care of one of the major costs of running a, a camp like that or, or a transitional community like that. So we just have a couple of minutes left. This will be my last question. You are also a teacher. Mm -hmm. Tell us about one of the courses that you teach. Yeah, so I teach, um, I'll, I'll do two, two courses, one in ENVS and one in, in landscape. So in, in ENVS, one of the courses I, I teach, you know, the, the regular intro to environmental studies, um, which, or intro to environmental science, which I highly recommend. Um, <laughs> but I also teach a, a water and sanitation course, which um, looks at sort of all the different aspects that I can cram into 10, 10 weeks of uh, the water and sanitation issues around the globe and how we deal with those and what are the different mechanisms and, and sort of the different ways in which we can address those. And, and I really enjoy that class. That's a, that's a lot of fun. Um, another one that I teach over in landscape architecture is design for a sustainable world. Um, and the idea is to really sort of look at um, what are the design solutions that we can be applying? What are the most effective design solutions that we can be applying uh, to address climate change, specifically from a landscape architecture lens. Um, and so it's sort of, you know, we, we use uh, the drawdown, to, to, uh, which is a, um, a report that came out a few, few years ago um, that looks at the most effective ways that we can actually be, you know, past how do we stop the carbon that we're sticking in the atmosphere, but then how do we pull it out? So what are the ways in which we can be doing that from, from sort of a landscape architecture lens? That's also a really fun class. So. Um, I'd say if you if you want to if you want to get involved, you don't have to have any prerequisites for that one, or for either of those two, actually. <laughs> well, thanks, Corey, for talking with us today. Your work is so interesting and so urgent and important. We really appreciate you taking the time uh, to share it with us. Well, thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Corey Russell, Assistant Professor of Landscape Architecture and Environmental Studies at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.